Uh, welcome to the City Church. Uh, my name is Anthony, and um, I have the uh, honor and privilege of being one of the pastors here, as well as uh, the great joy of being able to spend the next several moments with you, opening up the scriptures and uh, thinking about our God and who he is and what he's done and why all of that matters. Um, if this is your first time, welcome. Really glad that you're here. would love to be able to meet you if I haven't been able to already, but also need to let you in on uh, what's taking place during this time in our gathering, both in kind of a big picture way, but also a bit more of a specific way. And so uh, for us as a community, when we gather together on Sundays for worship, um, as part of our worship, we take some significant time to open the scriptures and to uh, consider our God and who he is, um, especially as revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, to which uh, our scriptures tell the story of. And so we do this by taking a theme or a topic or one of the books of the Bible and looking at it for several weeks in a row. And so a number of weeks ago, we're in part eight today, uh, we uh, started this series that we've titled The King's Cross. And uh, amen. And uh, <laughs> what we're thinking about and considering um, is this particular section found in the Gospel according to Mark. So if you're not familiar with, the, with our Bible, um, that we use to, you know, to learn about Jesus. Uh, the Gospel according to Mark is uh, found in the New Testament. It's the second book in the New Testament. And really, it's just telling the story of, uh, of Jesus, of uh, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And in chapters 11 through 16, uh, we have Mark focusing in on this uh, particular section of Jesus' life, namely the, the last part of it. Um, so the last week of Jesus' life, including his death and his resurrection. And so we've been looking uh, really just section by section through this, uh, through this larger section, um, week by week, and uh, just digging into like what was really going on with Jesus uh, during these final days of his life um, because much of what he said and did is just extremely uh, significant. And so uh, today we are getting into uh, chapter 14 verses 10 through 25. Um, super, super cool passage uh, looking into the, the final uh, meal that Jesus had with his disciples. Uh, the Last Supper is often referred to, but uh, don't think da Vinci. Don't think da Vinci. That's not what it actually looked like. Those are a bunch of white Europeans. Jesus uh, was, was not a white European. There's that, but also they weren't, they weren't sitting quite the way that they were either. Um, but we're going to unpack that, and it'll be, it'll be a bunch of fun. We've also been letting you in um, on the passage that we're looking at the following week. So next Sunday, we're going to be in uh, chapter 14, verses 26 through 52. And we're letting you in on that so that throughout this week, you can spend some time um, in that section, reading it, meditating on it, um, considering it. And then hopefully, if you're a part of a small group, discussing it as well. And if you're not a part of a small group, we would really encourage you to join when we have some space and some. And so downstairs on the side of the building, um, you can fill out a form and we'll get you plugged into one of those. But today uh, we're looking at 14 uh, verses 10 through 25. So my plan is to uh, read it and then um, I will pray briefly, uh, give you a little bit of introduction and outline as to where we're going. So if you have a Bible, Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 10. So Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, uh, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us, and the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came, to, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it in the kingdom of God. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the moment in time that you've given to us, uh, space to gather in, opportunity to sing, to open the scriptures, and um, with all of this, especially the opportunity to come to the table and be reminded of the broken body and the shed blood of your son who is our redemption, the forgiveness of sin, the hope of eternal life, the reality that one day you're going to make all things new. 
And we ask, Father, that this morning as we think through this section and all of what it means for your son to have engaged in this meal and passed it on to us, um, that you would help us to see him more clearly, to love him more deeply. Father, we, uh, we give this time to you. By your spirit, would you move in us? For we ask in Christ's most matchless, most precious name, and all God's people said, amen, amen and amen. If you were to uh, consider maybe some major uh, like revolutionaries or leaders of the past, like all throughout history, even, even world history, not just in America, but if you were to think of revolutionaries or leaders who have started movements and then consider how it is that they went about starting that movement or uh, like tactics or strategies, right? Um, you might think of things like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And, uh, and the Civil Rights Movement and the powerful speeches that he gave, right? The, the inspiration that he extended just from his voice, right, in those crowds. And also maybe even the way he, he went about it with pacifism or passively engaging those who were doing evil in order to try to help stop it. You might think of uh, maybe even on the other side of the spectrum and terribly so, Adolf Hitler who wrote a book, and in that book had this sort of manifesto about how it is that he wanted to start this movement, worldwide movement, especially to overtake the Jews, and then those powerful speeches that he gave, right? This is how he, the tactics that he was using to try to bring about this movement or this revolution, if you will. You can think about maybe the American Revolution, and, and so protests like the Boston Tea Party and stuff like that. But if you think about revolutions or a person or a group who are starting a revolution or a movement, right? You come up with these, these different tactics, these different strategies. If there were to be a person that we might consider as the, the greatest revolutionary who's ever walked the planet, or maybe the person who started the, the most significant movement that the planet has ever known, I think you'd be hard-pressed not to say Jesus Christ. I mean, out of, out of all of the people who've started movements and, and created revolutions, Jesus' name is is renowned all over the world. I mean, we're 2,000 years removed and it's hard to find a person who's never heard of him. I mean, the fact that today is March 1st, by the way, March 1st? Come on, what is going on here? But the fact that it's March 1st, 2020 is because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Like, that's significant, right? And if you were then to ask, well, what was Jesus' strategy? What was his tactic as he's beginning this revolution, as he's beginning this movement? Like, what is he going to do to inspire people to say, we're with you in this? Of course, he teaches. Of course, you know, he does miracles. But when he talks about what the whole thing stands and falls on, that is him, his person, his work, what does he do? He gets his disciples together, and he has a meal. Like, that's pretty significant, I mean, out of all the tactics and strategies that you would think one would use to start a movement, why would you go, hey, let's have a meal together? But that's precisely what Jesus does. He sits down with his disciples and he has a meal with them. And the reason that he does this is because he understands the significance of this meal and what it has been pointing to, namely himself, and what it will point to in the future. See, this meal has been around for, for 1,500 years or so prior to Jesus. They've been eating it every single year, that is, the Jewish people have. Jesus is stepping into a long tradition of this meal being eaten annually. And, and not only that, but this meal has been continually eaten every single year since Jesus even came, died, and rose. So, I mean, you think about a practice in place in world history for 3,500 years or something. I mean, who is doing something every single year? Like what civilization or what, what community of people, what ethnicity, what heritage is doing something every single year for that many years in a row? I mean, we just don't practice stuff like this as Americans. We don't have these sorts of traditions, but, but Jesus is stepping into a long line of tradition to try to help them, point, help them to see how he's pointing to this revolution. And this is, of course, the, the Passover meal that we read about just now. I want to think with you uh, this morning about this meal and what Jesus is doing um, really under a couple headings. The first being like how it is that he's revealing himself and what he's really all about. Namely, that he eats with intention, uh, he eats with sinners, and he also eats for a revolution. And then secondly, and we'll be super brief on the second point because we've got a lot of ground to cover on the first, um, is really how it is that Jesus, through this meal um, and inviting us into it, is provoking reconciliation and renewal because that's really what he's all about. So let's see how it reveals Christ. And first, um, I want to think with you about how it is that Jesus eats with intention, okay? If you look back at the story, notice, notice, what, notice these couple things that stick out. So on the first day of, of, of uh, the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. 
wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples sent out and went to the city. They found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. Notice the repetition of two particular ideas right there. He sends them to the city. That's mentioned twice. I think Mark really wants us to to capture where it is that they are, but then also what it is that they're about to do, namely that they're about to eat the Passover um, meal together. But think, first of all, about the city. Like, Jesus is very intentional in where it is that he wants to eat because this city is very significant. If you were here last week... You recall that Jesus went to Simon the leper's house. Simon the leper's house was in Bethany. It's outside of Jerusalem. So he takes his disciples to that place, and he enjoys a meal there with Simon the leper, along with Mary, um, who anoints him, right, who was the sister of Martha and that of Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Um, You can read about that in John chapter 10. He's at this house in Bethany with them. And and now he's saying, I want you to go into the city. Well, what city? Well, obviously it's the city that he he had just come out of when when he went to Bethany, and that city would be the city of Jerusalem. Now, this city is extremely significant, um, not just, just to Jesus, but to all of human history and especially the, the Jews, right? This city, the city of Jerusalem, is actually really the city of peace. That's what it means, right? So shalom is, is peace in, in Hebrew, right? And so you get Jerusalem, like it's the city of peace. That's what the city is all about. And to Jesus, it was extremely significant. In fact, if you read the, the Gospel of Luke, it says that Jesus, as a child, went to this city every single year with his family to, to celebrate the Passover meal. So Jesus was very familiar with the city. He, was, he understood the significance and the history of the city, and he loved this city. This city for these people was, was a huge, huge deal because this city for these people represented more than just a, a group of people getting together in some kind of close proximity. To them, this city represented God's work in the world. To them, this city was sort of like the new Garden of Eden, if you will. Right? When sin came into the world and, 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 and really pushed them out of the garden when they were exiled from it, humanity had been longing and looking forward to getting back in, to getting back into that place where they experienced the very presence and closeness of God. And that's what the story of, of the Old Testament is really all about, is God bringing them back in. And part of that story of bringing them back in includes this actual location of this city, the city of Shalom, the city of peace. And so if you read throughout the Old Testament, you're going to notice promise after promise and also statement after statement regarding the significance of this place because of what it really represents for these people. Again, getting back into the garden. So if you go back to the the story in Genesis, you're going to find God calling this man out of Ur of the Chaldeans. His name was Abram. Really all that's the significance there is that he was, he was basically a pagan. He didn't know Yahweh. The people did not know Yahweh or the, the God of Israel. He calls this man Abram out, and when he calls Abram out, he says to him that he's going to be the father of a great nation that's going to bless all of the nations of the world, but notice how he ties it in also with this land. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Notice this, to a land that I will show you. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So along with this promise that he's going to be the father of a great nation and be a blessing to all the nations of the world comes the promise of this land. Because the land signifies, again, this place of peace, shalom, harmony, the Garden of Eden is what he's talking about, right? Getting them back into the presence of God. In the book of Exodus, here's what it says. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land. Right? So he's getting them out of that place of exile and back into this land. So you see the significance of God constantly promising. Now, when they finally enter into the land, right, through Joshua, you can read the stories of Judges. When they finally get into the land, um, this guy David, one of the, the first great king of Israel, really, uh, he gets into the land and he appoints the city, like the city of Jerusalem, as the center of, of this land, this, the city where God dwells, the city, the city of Shalom, right? And that's where Solomon, his son, builds the temple because it's to say, like, God's presence comes down in this place, and this is in the center of the city at the highest point, right? So the, the significance of this place, right? You can read through the Psalms as many of those who lived in Jerusalem, in this city, recount it. Jerusalem, this is Psalm 122. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Like they care deeply about this particular place. Or in Psalm 125, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Like this city was a place of refuge, safety, security, God's presence. That's what this place was all about, right? So when humanity is exiled from the garden, God is constantly trying to bring them back into his presence. That's what this city represented. Now, sadly, 
Israel's history not so hot. They, uh, they made tremendous mistakes. Their leadership was oppressive. They weren't taking care of the land. And if you recall, actually, in the Old Testament, God said that when they get into the land, if they mistreat the land, and they did mistreat the land and the people in the land, he said, you'll be vomited out of the land. <laughs> Pretty stark language, right? But, but that's what happens, right? They mistreat the land. They mistreat each other, and especially the poor and the marginalized. The prophets come to them. They speak to them. Say, turn from your ways. Turn from your ways. Otherwise, you're going to be exiled from the land. Now, to them, that's a huge deal. To be exiled from the land is to be exiled from the gardens, to be exiled from the presence of God, right? And so, so the prophets are speaking, but they don't, they don't seem to care. And so the Babylonians come in. They take them out into captivity. But even when they're in captivity, God sends prophets to speak to them. Notice Zechariah. Thus says the Lord, I've returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. See, even when they're in exile, he's speaking to them about the significance of bringing them back into this place and all of what it represents. In Micah, and many nations shall come and they'll say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. See, it's from this place that God would have this people as he brings them in and they would be a light to the rest of the world. Like that's what this place signified was the presence of God, them being able to fulfill the mission that humanity was meant to fulfill from the, from the very beginning, which is to image God well, right? Now, sadly, when Jesus enters into the scene, this city yet again has been corrupted, right? We saw this earlier in the story as Jesus went into the temple and he sees them turning it into a den of robbers and Jesus turns over the tables and he's basically saying this place is corrupted just like it was hundreds of years ago in the times of the prophets. It's, it's all a mess. And you find him, him also being confronted by the authorities and him speaking back to them and then you also find him out at the Mount of Olives looking at the temple and saying not one stone will be left unturned. He's pronouncing that this whole thing's gonna crumble because just like the days of old, you're not paying attention to God's ways and what this city actually represents, his very presence. You're taking advantage of it, right? Jesus enters into the scene when they're acting just that way but Jesus still loves the city because he still is after this purpose. Notice what he says after he pronounces these woes upon the corrupt leadership, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those, stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her broad under her wings and you weren't willing. It's like with tears, Jesus sees what's going on in this place and all of what it represents and how it is that they're fleeing from the goodness of God and his heart, his heart breaks for this. He wants this thing to be restored, to be renewed. It's in this setting that Jesus begins this meal. If you look back, as I was saying, there's the city is repeated twice, but the Passover is also repeated twice because these things go together. What he's doing with the Passover has very much to do with what he's trying to do and bringing them back into the presence of God. But the only way that we can really understand that and see it, because again, in our day, we're so removed from these sorts of traditions, is to, to actually walk through the whole thing. And so, um, uh, so welcome to my living room. Um, it's pretty, huh? I did a good job, come on. Um, what, what I'd like to do is, uh, is grab a couple of you, a, a guy and a girl who wants to, who wants to engage in the... <laughs> no, I... Uh, Anybody? Don't make me call on you. I'll pick somebody. I need, I need a guy and a girl. And you've got to be comfortable. No, I need an adult. Come on up. I need a girl. I need a female. Come on. Come on. Don't be shy, ladies. Come on. Come on. Here you go. Yeah, I'll show you. Um, yeah, just make yourself comfortable right here. You've got to kind of lounge. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, get comfy. Come on. I need a lady. I'll call on somebody. Come on. Come on, Jasmine. <laughs> okay, um, you're not going to sit yet because I'm going to sit in the back. Okay. So just stay there for, for just a second as I grab my notes. I'm taking off my shoes, getting comfy. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so I think it's going to be on the screens as well, um, the view. Oh, and also, when you guys get up, be careful of the TV. Okay, just giving you a heads up. Um, so a uh, little bit of a disclaimer before we really get into this, into this meal. I told you it didn't look like Da Vinci's. See, we're, we're on the ground. It's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
a little bit of a disclaimer, okay? So I'm, I'm not Jewish, and uh, as far as I know, there's no Jewish heritage in my family at all. So the practice of this meal is not something that, that I grew up partaking of and, in fact, have really never even actually done outside of by myself in my office yesterday when I was going over this. Um, <laughs> but I've done, I've done a ton of research, and uh, my hope is that... Um, we're sticking to it as, as close as we can, but also um, within that is this meal is usually around two and a half hours long. So I hope you don't have plans later. <laughs> Just totally kidding. Um, this will be a bit more of a, of a truncated version of it. Um, and, so, and also, we're really only kind of doing the introductor, introductory um, pieces of it, too, which are, is kind of four parts. So I just want to give that in advance, because um, if I miss something, or if, it, if it's not exactly the way that you knew of it growing up, if you've done it before, you're very familiar, I don't mean to dishonor the tradition at all. In fact, um, my hope is that today, in us getting into it, we're honoring it by uh, just bringing light to the, to the reality of what the meal is, is actually all about. Um, I'm going to jump over here real quick and move that table. Sorry, I knew I was going to forget to do that. So, as we begin, oh, there's also going to be some, some response. You're, you're, you're supposed to think of yourself as the children who are part of the, of the meal. Okay, so that's your, that's your role today. So, um, we start, of course, um, every good Jewish meal starts with um, some, some good wine. It's not really wine, I'm just kidding. It's not even noon, Jasmine, jeez. She was like, and that's a lot of wine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm shaking. Oh, sorry. Okay, so um, there's also water because uh, you might need it for another one of these elements that we're going to enjoy that I'm not going to tell you about. Okay, so we start with, um, with a blessing, right? So, uh, uh, okay, sorry, shaking a little bit. All right, so we start with a blessing, and this is how it goes. Uh, you can't see it on the screen, so I'll just say it. And you're all going to say it with me, okay? May you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world, who creates the fruit of the vine. Notice something there. It's actually kind of interesting to me that uh, the blessing isn't for the food. The blessing is for the Lord, right? Um, the, see, the Jewish people, they understood food because God gave it to already be blessed, so it didn't really make sense for them to bless the food. Instead, they blessed God for giving to them the food, right? So this is the way that the meal begins. Um, the first piece that we're going to uh, experience is called the stirring of the karpas. Uh, and this is, uh, this is the uh, karpas we're going to pour it in here. And each element kind of comes with a bit of story. And so uh, you've got to grab a piece of lettuce for yourself here. This could be done with uh, parsley or cucumber, um, just went with lettuce. Okay, and so here's what we're going to do. We're going to uh, take our, our lettuce, and you're going to kind of dip and stir. All right. Go for it. Okay. Okay, and now we're going to, uh, we're going to enjoy this. Double dipping over here. You didn't get breakfast? <laughs> All right. So um, the the carpas is uh, it's a salt water, um, and it's it's actually supposed to be saltier than, than I have it right here because uh, when you taste it, you're you're actually supposed to kind of go, oh, what's what's that really all about, right? So it's supposed to be um, quite a bit salty, um, but there's a story that goes along with it. Uh, the dipping of the carpas, um, scholars have, have different takes on, on what could be going on here um, because uh, d- depending on the heritage and the family, they tell different stories. But the uh, Jewish scholars that, that um, I tend to lean on for, for information and study, um, they tell the story of Joseph. Um, if you're not familiar with um, the story of Joseph, Joseph was one of the sons of Israel who was, uh, prior to that, um, he had a different name. He came from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who's later uh, named uh, Israel as he wrestled with God throughout the night. And and uh, Israel had 12 sons, right? The 11th one was, uh, was this son, Joseph. And uh, Joseph was greatly loved by his, by his father, Israel, um, even more so than, than the other sons, right? And so the other sons, they hated 
Joseph. Um, his, his father had given him this coat of many colors. You might be familiar with that story. And so they hated him. They hated the fact that he was, he was more loved um, than the rest of them. And uh, one day, the uh, brothers, the 11 of them, they're out you know, uh, hunting and gathering or whatever. And, and Israel says to his son, Joseph, he says, you should probably just go out, go out with them, right? And so, so he goes out, and they see him in the distance, and they think to themselves, oh, this would be a great time to do something about, about this brother, right? This would be a great time to kill him. And so they throw him into a pit, and uh, they think that they're going to leave him there just to die and probably come up with some story to tell their father. But uh, one of the brothers, he goes, well, no, no, I got a, I got a better idea. Um, this is like more merciful than just letting him die in the pit. We'll sell him into slavery. And so the Egyptians are going by, and they sell this, this brother into slavery. And they go, well, what are we going to do in, in order to you know, get, get past the fact that like, he's not coming back with us? Like, What are we going to tell dad? And so they decide to take his coat and uh, dip it in the blood of an animal that they, that they found and, uh, and then take it back and say that he was mauled by a, by a creature. And the idea of the dipping of the carpos is um, that, have you, ever, have you ever accidentally just like chowed on your tongue? Yes. Ooh, yeah, what does it taste like? Like the blood is like, it's kind of salty, right? Yeah, so, so the idea is, is just as his, his coat was dipped in the blood, um, so we're dipping and we're, we're identifying with, with the situation at hand, right? And this happens to be the very first um, instance or the, the foundational instance for which the people of Israel were taken into Egyptian slavery. Um, so with that in mind, we now engage the kids, right? Because the kids at this point, like, of course, they've got some of the story, but what's with, what's with the rest of this? And so they would open up the, the discussion to the children, and they would say, um, go ahead and ask us the, these traditional questions. So they're on the screen for you, and here's, here's what I'd like you to do. I, I'd like you to ask these questions, but I want you to ask them like a child, okay? Have fun with it. We have this, uh, we have this uh, weird desire to, when we're reading out loud in public, to sort of get monotone and have the same rhythm. No, no. Some of you pretend you're three. Some of you pretend you're ten, and just... <laughs> Read the questions, okay? Ready? Go. Some of you don't seem curious. You're not asking anything. Read the questions. Uh, okay. Hey, hey, okay. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. Now, now I, can, I can tell you the story. So, so Joseph's there in Egypt, and um, he's, really, he's in prison, right? And, uh, and um, sadly, uh, you know, there in that state of prison, um, he's able to interpret some dreams that are helpful, but he finds himself back in prison. And a different pharaoh comes up, and he's able to interpret a dream for pharaoh that's really quite significant, because during this time, they were going through a famine, not just in Egypt, but also even in Israel. These famines were, were hitting a, a great deal of, of land and population. And uh, he was able to interpret this dream for, for pharaoh so that he would be able to stockpile um, wheat and other things so that uh, when the famine came later on, they would have what they needed. And so as he tells him this, and it begins to work, uh, he promotes him, and Joseph becomes sort of the... the you know, a guy with, with great power um, there in Egypt. And, but the, the poor people in Israel, they're facing the, the famine as well. And so they're, they're in need for food. And so what are they going to do? Well, Israel sends some of his sons down to, uh, to Egypt to scope it out and see if they can, if they can get some food from, from the Egyptians. And so they go. And when they get there, Joseph sees them. Because here he is in power. He sees them. They're asking him for food. But they don't recognize that it's, that it's Joseph, right? He looks completely different. And so uh, what Joseph decides to do is play this sort of trick on him, uh, on, the, on those brothers, to get his other brother down there, and maybe even his dad. And so he, uh, he plants these things inside of their bags and claims that they were trying to steal from, from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. And so, he, so one of the brothers has to stay behind while the others go back and tell their father what it is that had taken place, and, and that they have to bring the other brother with them. And so, so they bring the other brother back, and uh, Joseph tells them who he is. And uh, they're, they're distraught, they're saddened by the reality of what it is that they've done to him. But Joseph forgives them, and as Joseph forgives them, the, the people of Israel make their way into Egypt. He gives to them this land, and he gives to them uh, food, and, and now the, the Israelites have freedom. They have uh, the ability to, to eat and to grow and to accomplish the purpose for which God had brought them into, into existence, really. And so now what we do is uh, we proclaim a blessing. And so uh, throughout these, what you're going to see as leader, that'll be me, I'll, I'll say, 
for the leader, and then you all recite for the all. So we say, praise Yahweh. From the place where the sun rises to the place where it goes down. For Yahweh is high above the nations. Who can be compared with Yahweh our God who is enthroned on high? And now we cheers. May you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world, who creates the fruit of the vine. So a famous rabbi um, named Gamaliel, you might, you probably don't know of him um, outside of that he was uh, the rabbi who, um, who kind of taught um, and led a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus, uh, who's later known as Paul, the apostle in the New Testament. Um, he, uh, he wrote down that uh, the most important elements of this meal um, are kind of threefold, and we have um, two of them sitting in front of us. The third one's not, and we'll get to that. Um, the first uh, being, being the bread, uh, unleavened bread. Uh, the second being the uh, spicy herbs. And then uh, the lamb. Um, of course, the lamb's not at the table right now, and, and, uh, and I'll explain that later. The bread, though, is uh, the element that we come to now. This bread... Uh, represents uh, some very significant time in the history of Israel. As they were there in Egypt and they began to grow, they began to flourish, um, the pharaohs changed hands. And as the pharaohs changed hands, they forgot about the story of Joseph. They forgot about the one who was able to interpret the dream and help them to also also even be sustained, right? They they just forgot about Joseph. And they forgot about the the people of Israel and who they are and what they were really all about in terms of how they came from Joseph and from the father Jacob and Abraham and so forth. And uh, as they begin to expand and flourish and thrive, the Pharaoh uh, began to get probably afraid and even somewhat angry at these people. And so uh, he started to enslave them. But before he even enslaved them, he actually decided to get rid of an entire generation of them, sort of a genocide. So he, he demanded that the firstborn son of every single family be thrown into the Nile River to die. So he attempts to kill an entire generation of Israelites. But then he also enslaves them. He begins to force them into, into labor where they would be bu- building things for him and so on and so forth. Now, after this was going on, they began to cry out to, to Yahweh. They, they, and, and Yahweh heard their cries, and so he said that he was going to raise up for them a man who was going to lead them out of this bondage and out of this slavery. That man was Moses, right? And this man, Moses, he was able to escape the, the genocide, and uh, he was brought into Pharaoh's house, actually. So he knew Pharaoh, um, but he was raised with great education, with wealth. But one day, uh, Moses is looking out, and he sees that, uh, that a Hebrew person is in a fight with an Egyptian person, and he goes out in order to save his Hebrew brother, um, and he kills the Egyptian. And uh, because of this, Moses has to flee. He has to run. And so he finds himself in the wilderness for, for 40 years. They're wandering in the wilderness until he comes across, uh, just randomly one day as he's shepherding the flock, he comes across this bush. And this bush is burning, but it's not consumed. And as he approaches the bush, um, a voice comes out of the bush. It says, Moses, take off your, your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. And he tells Moses that he's going to use him to, uh, to go back to Pharaoh and to bring the people out and into freedom, right? Out of the bondage, out of the slavery, and into freedom. And of course, Moses thinks that this is crazy. There's no way that this could possibly happen. So he ends up going with Aaron as well. But they do. They go in to Egypt, and they speak to Pharaoh, and they say, let my people go. And Yahweh, um, he recognizing that, that Pharaoh would harden his heart, he wouldn't let the people go, he pronounces these plagues one after another, and he says, you will understand the power that I have over you and over the gods of Egypt because I'm going to make sure that my people experience freedom. And so plague after plague after plague and and Pharaoh's heart just getting harder and harder, sort of bringing the hammer upon himself until finally there's this 10th plague. But right before the 10th plague, Yahweh says to to Moses and to the people, he says that uh, I want you to be prepared for when I set you free. And so what I want you to do is I want you to to bake some bread so that you have food. But here's the thing. I don't want you to bake it the way that you normally do with leaven or with yeast because that's going to take time. I want you to just, I want you to bake bread without the leaven so that you'll have bread when it is that I I bring you out, so that you'll have sustenance, right? And so they would take the bread and, uh, do you want a lot of this? You didn't get breakfast? (laughs) Uh, So they would take the bread and then they would break it. Right? Because in Exodus 12, it says, They bake unleavened cakes for the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. 
And so we take the bread, we take a piece of it, and we say, may you be blessed, Lord our God, who brings bread from the land. This is why I brought water, just in case, Jim. Pretty, pretty dry. Pretty dry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now we come to the, to the second element that Gamaliel said. It's not polite to talk with food in your mouth, right? So the second element that Gamaliel said was, was super important was uh, the, the bitter herb. Um, and this bitter herb uh, signifies quite a bit, too. But it picks up kind of where the story left off or really kind of digging more deeply into, into the story and the situation in which they were in. These Israelites, as they were there in Egypt and facing this oppression, facing this um, slavery, uh, they were crying out. And, uh, and it says multiple times about their crying out and Yahweh hearing their cries. In Exodus 1, it says, uh, this is from Pharaoh, he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So you notice this, this idea of, of this bitter feeling that they had, right? Because of the oppression in which they, they faced. And so what we do is we, we identify with them. So you can use bread or you can use lettuce. Um, which would you prefer? I'm going to use bread. Okay. Would you? Bread? Okay. Now, I want to apologize to you in advance for what you're about to experience, but, but, but you volunteered. <laughs> you got you to grab some of it with the bread. Okay. With the bread. Oh, yeah. With the bread. Yeah, 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 like pinch it. Okay. Just pinch it with the bread? Oh, with your fingers, whatever. I don't care. I don't care. Okay. You're probably not going to want that much. Okay. I mean, you can give it a shot. Okay, so, um, so let me give you a little warning. This is called bitter herb uh, because it's bitter. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to eat it with the bread. And uh, something's supposed to happen from eating this. Like there's supposed to be a physical reaction to eating this. And uh, so, so if you're ready. All right, Cheers. Yeah. It's interesting. It tastes like, like wasabi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of, yeah. Um, oh, it gets worse. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I thought that was it. <laughs> uh, so it's just it's just shredded horseradish. Um, oh. Not creamy. That that'll dilute it. And it so, yeah. So. Um, <laughs> So what it's supposed to do, right, is, uh, is cause you to tear up a little bit. Um, because just as, as the people of Israel were crying out to the Lord in, in oppression, so what we're doing here is we're identifying with those people. And, and not even just those people, but we're identifying with any person or group of people who have ever gone through any kind of oppression, um, which includes every single person in this room, because to some degree, some shape or form, we are oppressed by either the works of Satan or even the own sin in our lives. And the idea is to, to identify with the plight of humanity, that uh, just as Israel was in Egyptian slavery, so we too find ourselves in a place where, where we also need to be set free. And so it's supposed to, supposed to like, have this visceral response physically to where you kind of cry or your, your nose opens up. It's supposed to be identifying with them and the cries of the people. Then we turn to the, to the last element, uh, which isn't at the table, and, and I'll explain why in a second, but that is, uh, that is uh, the, the lamb. Um, they would, they would take a lamb uh, into their home probably a week before they would celebrate this meal and then uh, they, would, they would kill them, the lamb they would, and, and uh, they would roast it. And they would enjoy this for a particular reason because uh, the people in Israel, after now having gone through nine plagues and baked the bread, they're now waiting for God to actually deliver them. And, uh, and so he says that he is. There's one final plague that God is going to pronounce upon Egypt and, and, even, and the gods of Egypt and that is 
that uh, the firstborn of, of every single household that doesn't have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts is, is going to be taken by the angel of death. And so he says this to the nation of Israel, and he says, so what I want you to do is I want you to, to take this lamb into your home, and I want you to slaughter it, and I want you to take the blood, and I want you to put it on the, on the doorposts. And uh, as the angel of death is sent, when he sees the blood on the doorpost, sorry, horse rider's coming back up. <laughs> when he sees the blood on the doorposts, he's going to pass over those homes, and, and those children will be saved. And the next morning, um, there was either a dead lamb or a dead child in every single house in the region. These people that had experienced life, right? They'd experienced the, the angel passing over them and them being, to, being, being able to remain alive. And it was from this plague that uh, the people were finally allowed to go. Sparrow says, all right, get out of here. That's, that's just too much. I, I see the strength of, of Yahweh. And so they begin to flee right? And they flee. Pharaoh decides he's going to chase after them, but they get to the Red Sea and Moses holds out his staff as the Lord tells him to. He parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground. And as Pharaoh and the armies are chasing, uh, the Red Sea pummels the Egyptians and the people are set free. And so what they're doing now is they're, they're living out this entire story of freedom. And so as the end here, one more time, may you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world who creates the fruit of the vine. Thanks for joining my Passover meal. Thank you, Pastor. Yeah, you can go. Give it up for our volunteers. If any of you are interested in the horseradish after service, I've got plenty we can share. So here's, here's the deal, right? That's, that's a lot of information and story, but there's something going on here that is really, really significant in this story. See, this story, even though it, it appears as though on the surface is primarily just about being set free from physical oppression, there's something else going on here, and that's what Jesus is, is really trying to get at as he pulls them into this meal. See, when, when, the Egyptian, I'm sorry, when the Jewish people thought of their oppression, they didn't think of it simply as they were enslaved to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians and that they had to do hard labor. They saw this as a very spiritual thing as well. If you notice when, when uh, Yahweh speaks about the power that he's going to, to reveal to, to Pharaoh, he says that he is going to show Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt his power. These people recognized that there was something spiritual taking place too, that there was more to this meal than just being set free from Egyptian bondage, but being set free from all forms of bondage, where it be physical, emotional, spiritual. They, God wants to set his people free from Satan, from sin, and from death. And Jesus recognized this. He, he steps into this meal to try to let, them, let the disciples understand who he is and what he's really about. And what he's really about is, is setting people free from all forms of slavery. And that slavery oftentimes can be from without, but oftentimes it's from within. So the lamb that they're eating at the Passover certainly goes back to the lamb there that they slayed and put the, the, the blood on the doorposts. But later on in the story, as God brings them into the promised land, he'll have them go about this sacrificial system. And the sacrificial system included animals being slaughtered and the blood being poured out. And the reason that the blood was poured out and that they sacrificed the animals was that in faith, what was happening is a substitute was stepping into the place for their own sin. And so as they sacrifice these animals, they're saying, God, we, we trust and we believe that you actually do forgive us. That even though we often step out of the garden, you're always inviting us back in. And so John the Baptist, a great prophet, according to Jesus, when he sees Jesus coming to him to be baptized, he looks out and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. This Lamb of God would be the one who would be slain, not just to get out of physical oppression, but to get even out of the oppression that we bring upon ourselves, sin. So he was the Lamb of God slain for the forgiveness of sin. And so that's really what's going on here, right? We've got this story that Jesus is, is inviting his disciples in to know that he is the one that all of this has been pointing to, the one who brings ultimate freedom. But here's what I also want you to see, is who it is that Jesus is eating with. And this is extremely significant because I wouldn't be surprised if oftentimes we doubt that Jesus would ever invite us to his table. But look back with me in Mark 14. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and they promised to give him money and he saw it an opportunity to betray him. As the story goes on, when it was evening, he came with the 12, the 12, 
And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. They began to be sorrowful, and they said one after the other, is it I? And he said to them, of course, there's somebody at the table, and he goes on. Judas Iscariot is at this meal with Jesus. Like the one who he knew would betray him is there at this Passover meal. And you think about like the patience and the loving kindness of God that he would invite to this meal a person that he knew full well would betray him is absolutely astonishing to me. And it's not just that he's at the meal. Something else very significant happens at this meal that you don't find in Mark's account, but you do find it in John's. I want to read it for you. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own and who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The devil enters into Judas Iscariot. He's at the Passover meal and Jesus disrobes and gets down on his hands and knees and begins to wash the feet of not just some guy who's committed some sin, but of a guy who's going to betray the very son of God. Like this is taking the lowest form of a servant like only slaves would do this during this time. And this is, the, this is the posture that Jesus has even towards Judas. Here's why this is so remarkable. When, when Jesus does this, he's acting out of the very character and nature of who God is and what God is like. That, that who God is and what God is like is the sort of God who would time after time after time even with Pharaoh. I mean, the patience of God with Pharaoh. Like the patience of God to try to wake him up to show him his power is what he's saying. I want him to see who I am and that I'm more powerful than, than their gods, that he is not God. I want to set even Pharaoh free is what's going on in all those plagues. And here he's, he, he's depicting this, this God with, with Judas. I mean, it, it takes me back to Matthew 5 when Jesus says this. He's, he, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, what makes God so perfect is that he loves his enemies. Like that's who God is and what God is like. And what we have here with the story of Judas is, is Jesus basically saying to every single person in this room, because none of us could ever do anything as terrible as Judas. He's saying to every single person in this room, you're invited to the feast. And as you walk in, he's going to get down and he's going to wash your feet because he loves you that much. Like, think about who it is that he's eating with. Then you get Peter. Then you get Matthew, who used to be a tax collector. Like, think about the past of that guy. Like, and here he is at the feast. Peter, who he knows is going to deny him. Yet here he is at the feast. See, what Jesus is doing with his intention with this meal is to bring people back into the city. That's why he's in this city. The city represents freedom. The city represents freedom from sin, freedom from Satan, freedom from death. And he's saying, if you come to the meal and you partake of this, like that's what he's going to do. In other words, Jesus is starting a revolution with his intention with this meal. Look back with me at this revolution. As they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And so truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus, Jesus revolutionizes the elements of this meal. This bread that he said, I want to give to you so that you can get out and have freedom. My body, I want to give it to you so that you can get out. You can get away from the bondage of Satan, away from the bondage of sin. I'm giving you a means to get out. Like this is what my body is for you. And the blood of the lamb, the one who takes away the sin of the world, but the one who also gets you the escape from death and even the fear of it, I give you that too. Like Jesus is revolutionizing the meal. Now to them, this might have been kind of mind-blowing, but, 
but also not so much because this was, this was told to them throughout the past. If you read in Isaiah, here's what it says. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. You know how you crush wheat and, to make bread. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. And Jesus earlier on in his ministry, truly I say to you, he says, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And you think about his blood being poured out, like that sounds really crazy. They're sitting there and he's like, can you just imagine? Jesus is like, oh, you want some wine? That's my blood. They're like, what is going on? But Isaiah Again, in 53, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Cut off from the land of the living, you see. Taken out, as it were, when Jesus is crucified from the land of Jerusalem, the city of peace. He's taken out, and he pours his blood out, you see. Jesus will say this as well in John 6. Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Like Jesus is offering life. That's what he's doing with this meal. And he's creating a revolution. A revolution that he's inviting you into. He's saying, come back into the city of God. Maybe not necessarily a physical city, but a city where you get to actually commune with God because he's taken away your sin and all forms of oppression. Like you actually have the freedom that you, you long for in Christ, like you have it, it's yours. Paul says it this way, and then I'll pray. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so friends, I don't, I don't know where you're at today, if you're, if you're one of those people who feel um, like even worse than Judas, that there's no way because of the amount of sin or history in your life that you could possibly be invited into, into the new, new city with him to be sitting at the table with him. But I'm here to tell you, he's absolutely inviting you to the table. Like no question about it, he wants you to come. And not only does he want you to come, he's willing to wash your feet. Let him do it. He wants to give you that freedom. So I'm gonna pray. I'll invite us to communion. Father, thank you so much for sending your son into this world and for letting us know the true forgiveness of sin and the freedom that brings. Father, I ask that uh, if any of my brothers and sisters here today are wrestling with the truth of your forgiveness or your love or your grace, God, that your spirit right now would remind them, would remind them that your love is infinite. Your love is never-ending. And that's in this moment and every moment to come. Father, as we partake of the, the bread and the cup, let us do it with celebration. Let us do it with the freedom that we know that we have through your son. For we ask in his name, amen.